Radio. I am your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And for those of you that are new, I welcome you to our show. We really just have a fun time on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, sharing ideas and, and thoughts and tools and all kinds of stuff to, to help us learn to live graciously with dementia, because it is a struggle. And I know that my own mother lived with the disease as well as our family and everyone around her for 30 years. And so we understand um, the range of emotions that people can go through, the isolation, the guilt, the frustration, sometimes even the anger. But there is a whole other side that brings peace and joy and calm and this this elevated, almost spiritual relationship that comes to be. And so that's really what we want to talk about when we're talking with all of our guests. I don't care if they're a researcher or if it's a teenager with an idea or a care partner, a person living with dementia, a business. Um, You know, we have had movie directors and singers and songwriters and authors. So everyone's voice is welcomed here on Alzheimer's Speaks because we truly believe it takes a village. It takes a community to bring hope and and give comfort and make people feel welcomed. So while you're listening, I would urge you to go ahead and subscribe and feel free to like and click and share because your likes and clicks and shares have really moved Alzheimer's Speaks all around the world. And again, we we interview people. It doesn't make any difference where they live. We are, you know, a sound community of um, common and unique situations trying to help one another out. And if you happen to be a business and are looking to expand your, your brand footprint, reach out to me because we have all different types of ways that we can help expose the work that you're doing or the products services or tools that you have for people living with dementia. And again, for our listeners, I have to say thank you so much. Um, you guys are just incredible. And in this season of, of, of being thankful and giving, I, you know, I, I can't say thanks enough to each and every one of you. Um, when you. When you click and share one of these episodes, if it's a radio show, a video, a blog, doesn't make any difference. Um, there are people in your own spheres that are that are dealing with dementia that you probably don't even know. And I'm a firm believer the more information we can have out and accessible to people, the more comfortable they will feel reaching out and grabbing it when the time is right for them. So before I introduce our guest today, um, who I'm really excited to talk to, because uh, I think we have very aligned passions when it comes to the dementia movement, I want to give a, a shout out to a few organizations. Uh, the first one, if you are looking for some gift ideas for the holidays, there is a book on the market that is absolutely wonderful, and it's a 
critically important in terms of helping families deal with a dementia diagnosis. It's called Parental Dementia, a guide through all the difficult questions. And it's by Keith Gallus, who has spent more than 20 years helping families work through all of the questions that keep popping up during this dementia journey. The book even has some um, great worksheets that can help kind of keep you on track and, and keep you organized. And Keith is also offering a discount if you go to purchase the book at his website, parentaldementia.com, and put in the code Lori, L-O-R-I, Again, put in that code Lori, L-O-R-I, um, you'll get $5.99 um, off your book, which is kind of sweet. Um, another type of gift that you might want to consider, and this one is a little bit more pricey, but definitely um, a lot of fun and you'll be making memories for life, is Lisa uh, uh Tariko is doing her second annual Alzheimer's and dementia-friendly cruise, and they're going to the tropics. And if you go to alzcruisetropics.com, you can get all the information. Alzcruisetropics, and that's plural. dot com. Um, you know, I did one a couple of years ago, and it was absolutely fabulous. People just had a wonderful time. And it's for people with early to mid dementia and their care partners and or families. We had both families come too, as I believe Lisa has. And it's just a wonderful opportunity, um, again, to make a, make a great memory. Another organization is the Stall Catchers. Now, Stall Catchers is where we as individual citizens can go and actually help analyze real live Alzheimer's data through playing a video game. And there are people all over the world playing the game. Uh, many of them even have competitions going between one another. They're starting to launch it in schools and libraries. Um, and so go to stallcatchers.com and check that out. And then last, I'm just going to give a shout out, of course, to the memory cafes because they're so um, near and dear to my heart. In the U.S. now we have about 800 of them. And, uh, you know, they're just kind of organic and growing all over the place. Uh, but you can go to uh, memorycafedirectory.com and you can see if there's one in your area or maybe you are hosting one and you want to get it in the directory. There's absolutely no cost to do that. So please uh, check that out. Again, a memory cafe, if you're not familiar, is for those with early to mid um, dementia and their care partners. And sometimes I know in the ones that I do, we allow people with dementia to come on their own because maybe their care partner can't, or maybe they don't have a care partner. Um, and sometimes we have um, care partners come who um, maybe the person with uh, dementia is ready to come to the group, but they want support. Everyone is different. So just, just check those out and, um, and see what you think. So let's get to the show today because it's going to be a fun uh, conversation. I am, again, really excited to have Mona Lancaster with us today. And she cared for her mother who was living with dementia. And then when her mother passed away in 2016, she became passionate about making life better for those living with dementia along with their care partners. She believes, like I do, that we need to shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. 
And so she's do, she is um, walking her talk, and she's going to share that with us. Mona has her BA in psycho- uh, psychology. She is working on a geriatric certificate program uh, through McMaster University, and she has also completed an intensive training through Britain's Dementia Care Matters organization. And that um, organization is studying the butterfly model, which we've talked about before on this show, and we're going to talk a lot more about it today. So welcome, Mona. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Lori? I am doing fantastic. If you don't mind sharing with us um, first just a a little more background about the journey you had with your own mother. Um, Mm -hmm. How did you you find out and how long did it go? And, um, you know, maybe a a poignant moment for you that was just a turning point. Well, um, one of the things I want to share is that initially I started out in university working in long-term care as a nurse's aide, and I always thought long-term care was a viable option for seniors. At that point, we had very little dementia existing, and I think back then we even called it senility. So if you fast forward, my mother had a diagnosis in 2011, and uh, as, a style, as a sandwich generation, we had four teenagers, and we had tried having her with us at home, uh, then a retirement home, and even after that, she had a stroke. We, we went on to long-term care, and we felt that none of them were really great options. We felt the home environment was too busy, too noisy, and limited exposure to activities for mom to participate in. Um, I felt retirement homes were a challenging experience. They're a great place socially for cognitively sound seniors. However, I think my mom really found them um, isolating. And uh, in my experience with seniors without cognitive impairment, they can sometimes even be afraid of people with a dementia diagnosis. But Mm -hmm. um, I found that the ratios were very limited in terms of care and support. So mom was quite alone in that environment. And then uh, mom ended up in a long-term care after a stroke, which left her with aphasia. And um, there were many challenges that uh, the care, with the care in particular in a long-term care. Um, All of these experiences, though, uh, you know, it made me think about my my initial experience back in university. Like there was a, almost like a, a an ability to compare and say, "Wow, things have really shifted." Because it just uh, I had no awareness of the difficulties of care in dementia and what was out there. And so, all of these experiences in the three living environments we had. Um, were an education, and they were actually a training ground to inspire me to create change. When my mom finally passed, in, I think it was 2016. Okay, wonderful. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for kind of giving us that history. You know, we were talking offline a little bit, um, and you used the word, you know, that we we need to create change through a, a training ground. What exactly do you mean by that? Well... <clears throat> the training ground that we really need to educate ourselves more. And I actually remember asking the community care worker at our government health system if there was something like what I really thought would help my mom was a small home environment, something where she was just with other women like her and to share this journey. And so I had asked um, 
because I also, um, in my psychology degree, I knew environmental science really promotes um, small environments are usually better for many reasons. So I asked her if there was such a thing as a small home environment for women living together with dementia, and she looked at me, the, care, the, the, um, the nurse, and she, this was 2014, and she said, wow, you're really ahead of your times. And so that was almost the impetus. It started me thinking that, you know what, why, why not? <laughs> it just mm-hmm. seems so logical in my mind. Yeah, that's one thing. We're lucky here in the U.S. We have a lot of small group homes for, for various um, various people. If it's people with dementia or developmental disabled, or it's a huge concept here here in the U.S., especially in, in Minnesota. Um, but, yeah, I, when you were saying, you know, I told the nurse, and, and I, I could just picture her face kind of twisted going, what? Yes. <laughs> because that seems to be just such a common response when anybody brings a new idea to the table. It's like, well, where'd you come up with that? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think it is. It's like this thought that maybe a group home isn't such a great idea. Um, we just seem to have a stigma about that, you know, and yet it's to me it's a much more effective way of living in community than in a large well, institutional setting. Yeah, it's just it's more normal, it's natural, and it allows people to be, you know, if they're an extrovert or introvert, um, kind of mold in a little bit easier, I think, too. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. I think in uh, large communities, they're busy just to be busy, but it's not necessarily offering anything particular for soul value. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that there's a huge, huge difference there. We get so task-oriented. And I think families can get really task-oriented as well. But I, but I think it's something, you know, communities don't want to get tags or flags or whatever you want to call them from their health departments and their, you know, the, mm-hmm. the people who are, are doing the surveys and things and and sometimes we we get disconnected with that um, basic relationship of uh, you know that you have with people so real real important what did you find out about um, small home environments for people with dementia um, who well, who inspired you and what did what did you see well, I, I started to do my research, and I found out that the Euro- European countries where the demographic shift had already happened 20 years ago, the, you know, the shift where the over 60, age of 65, the, the population was greater than that of under the age of 12, that happened 20 years ago. And mm-hmm. so they had their crises back then and had to figure out solutions. And I noticed that there were some... Uh, housing small home environments that they promoted on on um, online and so um i i i know that denmark was well known for that and and germany and the one that really stuck with me was germany um there's a gentleman out of uh, berlin uh, named klaus poletko and he's in charge of um, a program called uh, friends of the elderly and he has over helped initiate 3,500 of these houses throughout Germany, and I think um, 600 of them are in Berlin, and Berlin is about the same population as Toronto. But he's been doing this for 20 years. They're tried and tested. The common theme is relationships and purposeful living that you spoke of earlier, and they seem to happen uh, better in a small relationship. The, The 
premise of a social model of care is there. Um, as a matter of fact, what was interesting, because so many of us have heard about the uh, the dementia village out of the Netherlands, oh, and yeah. we, everybody's saying it's such a wonderful, you know, um, effective way of living, and it's not necessarily the village that's effective, but what we're learning is that within that village they house people in small apartments. So they have an apartment with, that might be a home for six to eight people, and what they do is they house them according to common themes. So one apartment might consist of um, men who were businessmen during their working years, or another house might be full of women who are artists. And so um, the success, and it was pointed out to me by a professor who studied person-centered care, isn't necessarily in the village. The village gives some purpose, but really and truly the connection is in the small living environment that they go back to. So um, we at Memory Lane sought out a social model of care, as I said, in Germany, and and we found that um, what was the success in, in, in their particular model is that it was a cooperative form of living. So the families and the people living in the house had a say in how um, how they lived each day, you know, the care service, what activities were going to take place. It gave the people a feeling, I think, of control. As a cooperative model, we know that it usually allows a higher level of control for uh, the end users. And there's a mm-hmm. gentleman in Canada by the name of John Restakis. Now, he's a Canadian, and he is world-renowned advocate for cooperatives but he's been advocating for a national task force on cooperative elder care for years. And what he's suggesting, actually, is that the caregiver be just only a stakeholder with limited investment rather than being in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, that might take away from the, the whole sense of feeling that you're in control. But he points out um, with limited resources in Europe, they're actually starting to do that where the, the families kind of run the co-housing. The government might put in a small portion of funding, but it's, you know, um, they're just a, sm- a stakeholder, a part of it, not, not completely mm-hmm. in charge. Yeah, so that was what we felt was it just appealed to us, the success of not being completely government run, but having a government footprint in it perhaps. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Why don't you tell us a little bit um, about your housing model in particular and and kind of the butterfly model, the respite program, mm-hmm. and then um, you also do some ecotherapy, which some people might not know about. So um, maybe tell us about the design and, and how it's laid out and then uh, the programming piece on top of that. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we did was uh, our primary purpose, first of all, was to is to give caregivers and loved ones the opportunity to live well with dementia. So from the get-go, the house isn't a locked-up facility. It's a natural home that you and I would live with, bungalow, where we have uh, bedrooms that are all on sort of one level for them to live in. We have some bedrooms downstairs as well. We've created actually an intergenerational component. We have some students that are in the healthcare. Um, faculty over at a nearby college that are renting the downstairs at a minimal charge and um, we've we've kind of designed the house so it's very open spaced and uh, we have a a walking a walk around the house in particular that's you know promotes we call that ecotherapy getting outside for walks (laughs) 
it's a simple concept. I mean, we do it with the young kids. You know, you see people outside in um, daycares, but we never see adults, uh, seniors outside. And so that was the beginning uh, promotion of let's let's get people outside as much as possible because it's as important to somebody um, as an older adult as it is to a young person. But um, the idea of our home is that uh, we actually had a five-month rental earlier in the year to a woman who was doing a renovation in her uh, facility, and we had five women housed here quite, um, you know, satisfactorily. Like, everybody was happy. Uh, there was a small environment, and they they could sort of participate and help out where they wanted. So uh, what we've done is we've really focused on the emotional part of uh, the journey. And last year we uh, engaged in Dementia Care Matters to uh, take some intensive training. And and really it's about learning the social and emotional journey to create a culture that promotes quality of life versus quality of service. And that's what we really look for in the house. It's perhaps, I would think, the opposite of what we encounter in care homes because sometimes we see homes that are pristine, clean, and sterile, but the residents sit there in, you know, um, in idle moments. So mm-hmm. Dementia Care Matters, uh, with their butterfly model of care, supports, I believe people are familiar maybe with Tom Kitwood, personhood theory that states people living with dementia have a basic psychological needs and they they're probably the needs of everybody but you know he's pointed out that even in dementia you have these needs which are love identity comfort inclusion attachment and occupation and we believe that engaging people in the running of the the house so to speak uh, promotes all of this and uh, so we've started programming in the house Uh, we were actually outside in the community and we brought our programming into the house this year and found that it was um, just a much more comfortable environment it's we still keep it small but people uh, join us for activities and then you know they help participate in in uh, a lunch to to end the event with and usually that lunch everybody helps to participate everybody the caregivers um the loved ones with a dementia diagnosis they all help out wherever they can and we love it it's like eating in community and i noticed that um the that was something that's you know promoted um in the dementia um matters dementia care matters is you know eating at a table together and letting everybody have a purpose whether it's you know doing the dishes or sweeping the floor and connecting and i noticed that after a lunch we'll have caregivers talking to caregivers we'll have go for a walk with some of the people with the that are living with their dementia diagnosis outside everybody just it's just like a house and it's simple it's living you know life in i would call it normally <laughs> so um i believe that um uh the other thing that we really promote is education and so uh usually we we host annually a conference and we're having something come up in january 17th where we've invited um uh, an investigative reporter who studied in depth the um Dementia Care Matters and the Butterfly Model of Care that that came about in Peel Region, which is in Ontario. And so that's an opportunity for us to educate the community at large, the caregivers, the uh, 
uh, healthcare professionals even, and just uh, the more education, as you said earlier, I think the the better we are to prepared as caregivers and just as a community to deal with um, this dementia onset. So, yeah, we're we're quite impressed with. Um, the success, we've now started doing respite as well, and within the respite care, we find that people can bring their services into the house. So if somebody's having a respite for four or five days and they have somebody who does exercise with them, they bring that into the house. The parents help us, you know, the, the caregivers, whether it's a parent or a child, uh, will decide on what, what their loved one should, you know, would do and, and, and sort of with their blessing and, and what the, you know, it's quite a, a natural process, a structure. We, we do things as we see the loved one wants to do things. We're, we're not, uh, we will encourage things that kind of make them happy. We try and connect with them emotionally. So the nice thing about our, our respite is people come here already. The caregiver and the loved one come to our programs. And so you know to to bring somebody into respite after that it's a familiar environment they know us they know the home and it's a it's a smooth transition and we think that's part of the success so yeah and that's it that would be what i would have to say our ultimate goal is to uh have a home that would permanently house a cooperative um environment and so we're sort of work in progress right now but we thought we would continue with this uh, respite care and eventually we'll move on into something ideally what we'd love to see is this cooperative model replicated uh, you know so we could have right now we have a house our house services five women um, but down the road we'd like to see maybe a a green care house a green care type of farmhouse for men who love to be outside and doing things so Oh, see where we yeah where we end up on this journey yeah and there are the um the, the um day program um models mm-hmm. where there are farms which i just find fascinating that that's mm-hmm. what they use over in europe you know <laughs> versus what we what we have here so it, it is interesting how everybody does it's just a just a little bit different than than one another um what have you found in terms of of families' response to mm-hmm. to respite? I I find here in the states that they don't really even know what what it means. Well, we did. Um, I guess respite is kind of in the eyes of the beholder, but I know the Alzheimer's Society in York Region came together with a dementia care strategy, and one of the highlights was they needed more respite for. Um, uh, for the loved one with a dementia diagnosis, and I see that. I, I think that's an important component, but I also feel like respite for the caregiver and loved one. One of the reasons we have our programs together is to create a form of respite for the caregiver as well. It's really important for them to stay connected with other people on this journey. And um, so when they come, uh, they they sort of see how... Um, how much value there is. They start, like I said, they share and have conversations and connections with other caregivers, not only with caregivers, but with also um, the loved ones of other other people here. But so for them, sometimes respite might just be getting out of the house with other people. I mean, it's a form of respite just to be in a, an area of support. 
Um, day programs are another form of respite, and I think the government really does promote that kind of respite where you're just sending your loved one off every day to a program, and some caregivers mm-hmm. need that. What we are, are offering up, and that's a little different, is hassle-free um, overnight respite if they need it. So, you know, we had somebody last week who had to go to Ottawa, and there's no way mom could have stayed at home with um, the the son and his family because there's just too much going on. So she came to our program and stayed after, and you know what? The transition was smooth. And I can imagine sometimes it's not because, you know, in this journey of dementia, there's a lot of fear and anxiety for people with a, the dementia symptoms, and they can escalate when when there's just um, more of the unknown. I mean, they're already struggling with their um, diminishing cognitive skills, and they know that. And so you put something else that's really unfamiliar in front of them, and, and fear just escalates and what we really want to try and do is you know create a relationship with them that promotes trust so that we can reach them you know it's kind of like it's an emotional currency to get them to work cognitively if i can say that no that i think that makes that makes a lot of sense and um Mm -hmm. and i think it's just so so very important can you tell us explain a little bit more about the the ecotherapy well, the ecotherapy is just a, there's studies that have shown you being outside does uh, does things to help um, uh, promote your well-being. And they actually did some studies, and I know we did this when we started out. We were looking at that um, that ecotherapy. They actually in the final stage or the the late the la, our last season of life, it's really an important component in it. I don't know about you, but I know with my mom, one of the things she just loved doing was going out for walks and seeing trees and birds and nature. And we are surrounded by it. Uh, one of the women um, last week who was on respite said something about, oh, I can see the birds outside. You know, it just was so enlightening for her. But the idea is we to be outside. And I know that on my mom's darkest moments, um, I would take her for a walk and we would just go and sing songs and and just enjoy the moment, just being in the mm-hmm. moment. And really, I think that's what ecotherapy does. You look around and you see everything and it's just, it's richer, it's more beautiful. There's something about it and, and people find it very calming in, um, you know, this season of their life for sure. Well, and I think it's just something too, you know, kind of brings us back to that more of, of this is you know this is something that pretty much everybody enjoys, and um, mm-hmm. it, and it and it doesn't focus on you know I have an illness. It doesn't focus you know it just kind of takes you away and just allows you to look at the simple beauties of life and and to me that's really what dementia is here to teach us to get back. Well, you to know the the um, one of the things beauty. with sundowners is that uh, you know it's. Sort of like if you've ever raised little kids, they're, they they have that we call it that witching hour at about four o'clock when things they just if they haven't been outside and they haven't had their exercise and their fresh air, it can be a tough time. And we find that you know what they're saying in in long-term care homes is that there's this thing called sundowners, and really what you want to do is get people outside and kind of eliminate this this hour so that they are you know refreshed, but they're tired and they're ready to go to bed after supper or whatever, whenever they, you know, just they need the exercise and the fresh air. It's just, it's it's part of, 
a basic need in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it really it it just kind of rejuvenates you and and uh, is very important. What what are some of the biggest challenges that you mm-hmm. have had at at Memory Lane, you know, home living? Well, I think there are one of our greatest challenges is that the government's lack of support in a new housing environment. They are not ready to look at small home environments at this point. Um, they struggle with change, and that's pretty common anywhere Uh, and they see I guess what we see is the governments have been trained to look at economies of scale with large institutional settings and what we find is that it's sort of a somewhat of an oxymoron in that there are many um, inefficiencies in an institutional setting especially in a uh, the care of dementia but um, it's it's a challenge for the government to look outside their box and 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 might have, it might partly be because they're they've been so trained and in, and ingrained about having a medical model of care and they see that in a large setting mm-hmm. so yeah it'll take it'll it it may i would suggest that over the next 10 years we will start to see a shift because in canada at least we are you know starting to uh we're we're starting to run out of long-term care homes and and retirement homes are filling up and it's just it's there's a lot of chaos so i think they're going to start to look at things in a in in a different light but change is slow change is slow change is slow mm-hmm. and and that can be that can be a good thing sometimes too because um going too fast can get really frustrating for everyone too but uh, i know sometimes i have to work on my patients uh, but even in the um the in, the long term care. I think I mentioned to you earlier that, you know, um, with the butterfly model of care and the, the dementia care matters. One of their theories is within a large institution, create small home settings, particularly in dementia, and keep people that are in different stages in different areas. And we don't see that. You know, we we have these large um, units with uh, lockdown and. Um, they're all, I, I hate to use the word clumped together, but they're, and that's not always helpful. I think people need to be with um, people that they have something in common with, and if it's even just a language or it's uh, the stage of dementia you're in, you know, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of reasons to maybe make smaller environments and, and make them home-like and cozy. There's a lot, lot to, they could do in the institutions, and so maybe that's where we'll see uh, the transition initially. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that could be. What are what are some of your favorite components of the of the butterfly model, and and how have you seen families react to it, as as well as as well as residents? <sighs> Well, I like the idea of them, you know, it used to be, like I said, the, the person-centered care theme uh, before the butterfly model was just, you know, um, about uh, sort of meeting the person on their terms, not on the terms of the institution. But the butterfly adds a little bit more and says, hey, wait a minute, you know, it's not just about that. It's also about having a relationship with these people. So I love the idea of being with these people rather than doing and also having mm-hmm. a whole the other theme I like is that it's a cultural change so it's not just the frontline uh, PSW that has to change her process of how she works with the um, the residents it's more of 
everybody's involved in this. Everybody learns this culture and promotes it. As a matter of fact, they're saying that a long-term care home facility could nicely implement a butterfly model of care, but you have to take all of the staff, and they all have to be butterfly trained to learn about how to connect emotionally with another human being. And sometimes it's looking at yourself and being vulnerable enough to have that relationship. So, for instance... It's not a one-sided relationship where you know everything about the resident uh, or your, the person that has uh, the dementia. It's about sharing, sharing some of you with them as well, being vulnerable enough to open yourself up in a, in a, in a retirement home or long-term care. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, we start to see in the workplace and a lot, and not just in, in care facilities and in, in health care, it's, be everywhere where people are very departmentalized well i'm this person at work and i'm this person at home and the idea is what a different environment we would create if we create a home-like environment in our workplace we're willing we're willing to share a bit of ourselves we're willing to take time to have the relationships and um i think it just it's, it makes so much sense that that's one of my favorite components is just understanding um how to bring people together, and it's not just mm-hmm. a one-sided relationship. But the other, um, the other thing I was I was thinking of was, um, you know, when we came, went into the training, they really emphasized to take a look at the difference between getting rid of the controls in an organization. So, you know, they had us compare. Our first day in training was to compare jails to hospitals, to long-term care, and simple controls like wearing uniforms and, you know, eating separately from the people that you're serving and, um, you know, um, levels of authority. They're just everybody sort of treats um, everybody equally, at least in the treatment of people, you know, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, the golden rule, treat everybody with respect. Yep, yep, exactly. It is such a, um, you know, to me, it's it's such a basic need and want from everybody, and I don't know why it's overlooked in the care industry, in terms of, you know, giving somebody that that safe, comfortable environment where they feel welcomed, and they feel appreciated, you know, because it's just it's a basic need everybody has, and yet. Mm-hmm. And to me, it needs to be, you know, really the primary and the, the core of of the care model. And yet we don't have that. And I think we got lost um, because we we have all these tasks that we're doing. And we look at those tasks and we think, well, it's all for them. So that is our core model. But again, we, we forgot about the relationship piece and, and how we're mm-hmm. how we're truly making people feel. And, you know, when I watch some of the, you know, various um, butterfly videos and things, they just say it's like night and day. You know, it's like someone just turned mm-hmm. on a light and, and everything, mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. changed. Uh, well, that. and it's also educating them, I suspect, because I know that retirement homes and long-term cares don't necessarily educate the family. And so the decision makers, and especially the adult children, when they're making a decision for their loved one with a dementia diagnosis, they may not understand the journey well. And so they, you know, they 
they don't really know what their needs are. And I had a conversation with a nurse out of Ottawa, and she felt that too many people were drinking the Kool-Aid and had been, and, and I, I kind of laughed because she said, well, they're all convinced that it's the medical model of care is, is what works and that they need a lockdown unit and um, it, it's sort of the opposite of what they need. They don't need the controls. They need the care and the love. So if we could educate um, the caregivers and the adult children to look at, uh, you know, a more of a butterfly model. I think I think that that will go a long way. But we're still kind of in the infancy of that. We we struggle, and you know, people are busy. And I know that it's funny because sometimes I wonder if my mom had cancer, or you know, if a chi- if an adult child had a parent with cancer, if they put more energy into figuring out solutions. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just. I wonder if we would treat it differently, and you know, it's an unanswered question for me right now. Yeah, and I and I think it's you know even outside healthcare, when I just look at society as a whole, we are not very mm-hmm. kind to people anymore. I mean, we've gotten really <laughs> fast-paced and downright brutal at points, and we don't always think before we talk. Um, we're we're not concerned or give any thought to how what we say or do might affect somebody and mm-hmm. you know and that really stands out super loudly in a healthcare model when you've got vulnerable people um, yeah. and and it just it needs it needs to change I'm I like one of the things I teach when I go around and speak is I really believe dementia is here to teach us to be better be better people yeah. period because. To me, everything that we learn um, that is good for dementia is good for all of our life mm-hmm. and all of our interactions. And it can make our lives much richer to slow down and be more present and get more out of our relationships. You know, they're there, and sometimes we just kind of float right past them because we're yeah, too busy no, being busy. Absolutely, and, yeah, for sure. And they talk with the age of technology that the pace isn't going to slow down on its own. So it's it's really up to us. And, and I'm horrible. I still have my phone on my bedside, you know, and I'm checking stuff and doing this and doing that. And so you don't have that downtime. And, uh, you know, one of the gifts for me with my mom was I always tell people she was like the safest place for me to visit because, she didn't judge anymore. You know, her ego had kind of left the building and she wasn't, you know, uh, she wasn't about that as the disease progressed. And she was like the most gracious, loving mm-hmm. person. And and mm-hmm. I could just mm-hmm. see whoever I was. I didn't have to hide it. I didn't have to put on a stepford, you know, wife smile and pretend everything's okay. Um, because that confuses them too when we try to pretend it's okay because they're reading all of our other nonverbals and things. And so I think they just get us much more in tune to the reality of how we communicate. And it's much more than just words. And yet that's where most of the emphasis is is put on is our, is our verbiage with that. Do you do um, much in terms of, of training your staff? Do you do anything, you know, differently um, I, I know when I watched the, the one of the butterfly videos, they talked about they don't do specific dementia staff training. Instead, they do vulnerability training, where the staff actually have to open up about their own vulnerabilities in order to have an appreciation for what their what they call their family members or or residents are going through. And yeah. 
well, most of our, 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 our volunteers, for instance, they are people that were caregivers themselves. And, you know, they're all just kind of, um, they real, they're very extremely vulnerable. They've been there. And it's just wonderful to have had that experience and to be open up and, and even just to still express, you know, their loss and be okay with it. And I find that, um, yeah, we're, we're seeing, uh, that it's about being vulnerable. And, and, you know, because we're small, we find that we don't have, um, we don't have that large pretentious work environment. There's, trust me, it's pretty on the other end of the scale for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we have regular meetings where we sit and chat. I mean, it's not a training per se, as you would say. We we send things to each other and we talk about them, but we have regular meetings where we just sit and uh, share things that have come up or, you know, what we're feeling and we're there sort of to support each other. So mm-hmm. it's a different environment. Mm-hmm. And I have never had an environment like this. Like I said, you know, usually in work environments, it's survival of the fittest. Yep. This is just such a different journey and I love it you know it's got its challenges but I will say that I really feel like I'm exactly where I need to be oh that's great that's great um anything else you know that you wanted to cover that we haven't so far yet no I think I think we've we've covered a lot of ground today Lori (laughs) okay I just uh as you said really encourage people to teach us how to be, you know, this journey does teach us how to be better people and uh, to open our hearts up. And I I would just ask everybody to um, think long and hard about, you know, slowing down and and let's get out there to see what we can do to make the world a better place. It's up to us. Exactly. Do you want to share um, specifics of, of what your address is too, so people know where you're located? Well, we're in Richmond Hill in uh, Ontario, and uh, we're kind of in the center of Richmond Hill, which is York Region, Young at Major Mac. And uh, if they want to reach us, I think our phone number here is 905-237-1419. And uh, you can also just go on the website. Our website is memorylanehomeliving.ca. Okay. And you, you also have a Facebook page and a Twitter account as well. Yeah, um, I they're believe- all on our, our website. So if they, you just go in there, you can click on everything. So Okay, great. Yeah, that makes it nice and easy. And, um, you know, if you're just on mm-hmm. Facebook right now while you're listening, it's Memory Lane Home Living. And on Twitter, it's um, at Memory Lane HL. And, um, well, Mona, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I so thank you for taking the time to be with us today and and sharing the work that you're doing. I think it's fascinating and um, will help so many people. I wish you the best. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Lori. Great. Thank you. In wrapping up, I just, again, want to say thank you to everybody and would encourage you to subscribe just click that button and you will be notified uh, each time there's an episode. We usually do a couple a week. And uh, don't forget to uh, like, click, and share, you know, on your Facebook, your Twitter, your LinkedIn, or there's so many social media accounts out there. I, I can't even tell you how many there are because I, I really think that we can get ahead of this disease and win this battle against dementia by building a sense of community and collaboration and comfort 
um, by just sharing what each of us knows. And don't forget to uh, check out that book uh, by Keith Gallus called Parental Dementia, a guide through all of the difficult questions. And you can go to uh, parentaldementia.com. And uh, the code to get that discount of $5.99 is Lori, L-O-R-I. And as always, uh, please visit alzheimerspeaks.com. There you can get to the radio show, the blog. You can see the videos we facilitate with those living with dementia called Dementia Chats. Um, We also have a a whole page of various projects and initiatives if you're interested in becoming dementia-friendly or part of the Purple Angel Project um, and so much more. So have a wonderful week, and we will talk to you all soon. Thanks, Dal. Bye. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.